Bob Moeller, is there anything you can't do? My goodness, inquire, praise the Lord. Yes, bless his name. Amen. Inquire, thank you. I hope you didn't hurt anything up there when you were singing that way. And uh, Chris, we appreciate the gymnastics uh, as you lead. My goodness, it's good to see someone leading worship who's on fire for Jesus. Isn't that something? My goodness. Join with me in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. We begin today a series entitled, A Future and a Hope. A Future and a Hope. A study in the book of Nehemiah. General Westmoreland was reviewing some paratroopers, and he would ask them uh, some questions. And one particular question he asked, one after the other, Do you love jumping out of airplanes? First uh, paratrooper replied, I love it. And then the next said, I love it. And the next said, I hate it. He said, then why do you do it? He said, because I like to be around people who jump. He wanted to be around somebody who stepped outside a comfort zone and got something done. Average people just wait for things to happen and to fall into place. Those who really do something great for God in their life, who have a future and a hope, that is definitive and beyond themselves, actually stretch and do something different. Nehemiah was such a man. In 52 days, with the power of God and the cooperation of the people, Nehemiah helped rebuild the walls around Jerusalem after they had been destroyed. And that's what we'll find in the book of Nehemiah. In merely 52 days, he did something extraordinary. He rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem, the very walls through which Jesus would enter a few centuries later, few centuries later when he entered into Jerusalem. How terribly important it is to have people who know how to claim a future and a hope. You know, we want to do that as a church for our community and for our friends and family and our neighbors. We want to be those kinds of people. That's why we do things like Friend Day and where we're inviting all of our friends to be here that day to get at least one here uh, when Scott Camp and Shane Wilbanks happen to be with us on that day. And uh, Nehemiah's prayer is going to help us pray for them as well. Uh, Walter Wink said, the future belongs, or excuse me, history belongs to the intercessors. In other words, the, the future does not have to be undefined. The future does not have to be a great, marvelous mystery. The future can be something that you shape and claim with your prayers. Um, Matthew Henry said, when God intends great mercy, he sets his people to be to praying. That's a fourth century old quotation, but it's, it's been changed through the years. And I really think it's better where they say, when God gets ready to do something, he sets his people to praying. He puts a spirit of prayer on their heart. And that is where a great future and hope begin is with a robust, growing, dynamic prayer life as demonstrated in the life of Nehemiah. I think we can learn something from this very practical man who approached the practical issues of life with a growing and exemplary prayer life in Nehemiah chapter 1. And again, what he did here is that he commenced the future and hope of Jerusalem. 
with a prayer life that resulted in rebuilding the walls in merely 52 days. Now, I want to do a couple of things with this text uh, this morning. One, I want to look at the prayer, and then second, I want us to live in the prayer. Uh, so first, let's let us let, let us look at the prayer. It's divided into two sections. Chapter one is the asking, and chapter two is the receiving. Asking and receiving. He asks in anguish. There's anguish in his prayer in verses 1 through 4. He hears that the walls are down around Jerusalem and that the people are in great distress. And look at the anguish with which he responds in verse number 4. He says, So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Let me ask you something. Do you have any pain? Do you have any sorrow? Do you have any suffering? Right there is where you begin a powerful prayer life. And it may very well be that God has allowed that to enter into your life, to cause you to seek him in a great way. C.S. Lewis said that God whispers in our pleasures. He shouts in our pains. And it may be that God is shouting through pain to draw you nearer and closer to him, to do something dynamic and great. Listen, don't despise your pain. Let your pain be a turning point in your heart and life like it was with Nehemiah. So there's anguish in prayer, but then there's awe, verses 5 and 6. Look how he actually begins his prayer. I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear, your ear be attentive and your ear open. He began his prayer not with gazing at his pain and problem. He began his prayer with a gaze upon God. He saw God for who he is and prayed accordingly. He did not pray allowing his pain and the suffering in Jerusalem to limit his prayer, to put boundaries on his prayer. Instead, he looked at God and let God be the measure of his prayer. Let God determine the boundaries of his prayer. He was a great and awesome God. And so that's what we do with our prayer life. We gaze upon God. We look to Him. And our pain, our suffering, our problems do not become a limit on our prayer life. Oh no, they simply become an impetus to looking to the great God with whom anything is possible. So there is anguish and awe, but then there's access. Verses 6 and 7. Look what he says there. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. And so he begins his prayer not only with being in awe of God, he begins his prayer by coming clean before God. He comes clean before God and he felt very comfortable coming before God and confessing his sin. And I sure hope you will too. Let me make sure you understand. If you are anything less than perfect, please hear me. God is a God who makes promises to the guilty. God is the kind of God who entices and draws the guilty to come to him with magnanimous, mind-blowing promises of grace and mercy. Whenever you come to God through Jesus Christ, he will cleanse you, and from that point on, you will have a bigger problem with your sin and guilt than he will. 
It's covered by the blood. It's covered and canceled in the salvation experience because of Jesus Christ. And Nehemiah felt that assurance before God. He felt it before Jesus died. This is five centuries before Jesus died. If he felt that way before Jesus died, imagine how what you can feel since Jesus has died and rose again from the grave. There is hope for you. And then there's anticipation in verses 8 through 11. Anticipation in his prayer. Here, he anticipates that God will keep his word. From verses 8 through 11, what Nehemiah really does here is that he summarizes in short form, the content of the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Jeremiah, both the threats and the promises that are found there. It's tremendous theology. And on that basis, he goes before God. He's got a biblical prayer that is chock full of the promises of God, reminds God in a holy way, in a very sacred way of the promise, and pleads with God to come through. Look what he says in verse 8. Remember me, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there, bring them to the place which I've chosen as a dwelling place for my name. And that's what the Lord did. That's what God did. He brought them back to Jerusalem. And this promise even found fulfillment as recently as 1948 when the nation of Israel was reconstituted as a nation by act of the United Nations. And I think God behind it all. So you can expect and anticipate God coming through powerfully when you plead and anticipate him fulfilling his promises. And then there's audacity in prayer. Look at it at the end of verse 11. The last sentence and the last few words. I was the king's cupbearer. I was the king's cupbearer. In other words, Nehemiah is merely a civil servant in the dining room of the king. He tests the king's food and drink. He's not part of the royal court. He's not part of the royal administration. He doesn't have uh, that uh, elevation in status and in position. He doesn't have those elevated responsibilities. He is a cupbearer. He serves the king's food. He tests it to make sure it hasn't grown sour or rancid or that it's not poisoned. That's all Nehemiah does. If there's something wrong with the food, he's the first to find out about it. And if it's poison, he dies first so the king doesn't. That's all he is. He's expendable. And yet what Nehemiah does is that he's got international relationships and affairs on his heart. He wants to rebuild a nation. Do you know what Nehemiah is concerned about? Nehemiah is concerned about something above his pay grade. Nehemiah is out of his league at this point. Nehemiah is concerning himself with international relationships, with city management, with city development. And he's trying to navigate a way here to get his employer, the king, to set him loose to go to Jerusalem so he can rebuild the walls. There's some audacity here. Nehemiah is operating above his pay grade. But though Nehemiah is operating above his pay grade, he's not operating above God's pay grade. All of this is under the feet of Almighty God. Is what takes place in his life. Matthew was a man who owned a small business. His accountant did his taxes for his business. 
and sent it to the IRS, and he got a letter back from the IRS saying he owed $130,000 more than what his accountant had figured. He didn't have $130,000. If he had to pay that all at once, he was done. His business was gone. They began interacting with IRS agents and speaking with them, and they found this real surly one that was quite sour, very stern, unwilling to be cooperative at all. Matthew called in a nonprofit Christian organization to help him pray through this. They assessed his small business as far as its spiritual commitment. They made some recommendations about prayer, and he began to plead and pray with God. And on the next appointment with the IRS agent, it was an entirely different IRS agent. He was a little more careful, a little more thoughtful, a little bit more open-spirited. And he began to go through Matthew's, um, Matthew's books and through his tax return, and all of the schedules and forms there, and he began to say, this is not right. This is not right. This is not right. And when this IRS agent was finished looking and reviewing Matthew's books, he said, you don't owe the IRS anything. In six weeks, he got a check for $40,000 from the IRS. He prayed. He was above his pay grade, and God came through. By the way, I'd suggest another accountant, by the way, but in any case, that's what we've got here in Nehemiah's life. Whatever you're dealing with, whatever's on your heart may be above your pay grade, but it's not above God's. That's asking. Now he's receiving in chapter 2. I want you to look there with me carefully. Nehemiah begins to, Nehemiah has prayed and he begins to receive. He waits and continues to pray for several months and then the answers start coming one after the other. The first thing that happens is that he has an inquiry. The king inquires. This burden has weighed on him for four months. The king notices, and the king then asks him in verse 2, Why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of the heart. And he tells him in verse number 3, he blurts it out in great sorrow about the condition of Jerusalem and its walls. And then in verse 4, the king said, What do you request? And so Nehemiah lays it out before him. The king who has better things to do than to look after Jerusalem all of a sudden gets concerned. God puts it on this man's heart. And you're going to see how he actually funded and helped and supplied necessary resources to get it done. Then there's an investment. Uh, he asked uh, Nehemiah in verse 4, what do you request? And he said in verse 5, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask you that you send me to Judah, to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? He mentions to him, and he said, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river. In other words, I, I need a passport uh, to get through international boundaries. And then verse 8, a letter, a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. He needs some materials to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So he's asking for leave, he's asking for passports, and he's asking for materials to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the king, in verse number 8, at the end, the king granted them to me according to the good hand of God upon me. And so he asked for an investment. And he gets it. God uses this king to marshal all the resources that Nehemiah needs to rebuild Jerusalem and its walls. Hey, that's not all. There's another answer. 
he gets some insight. He travels to Jerusalem and he begins to survey the city for three days. And then look at verse number, verse number 11. I came to Jerusalem. I was there three days. I rose in the night and a few men with me. I told no one what God had put into my heart to do at Jerusalem. God put a vision in his heart. God set something there for him to do. He laid it out before Nehemiah what he was to do. And that's precisely what takes place in the book of Nehemiah. Well, he's dealing with the people that have been depressed, who are low on the socioeconomic ladder. Uh, they don't have much of a future and a hope they believe. But look at the result in verse number 18 after he cast the vision before the people. Look at verse 18. I told them of the hand of God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he spoke to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to this good work. Hey, people that are successful, people that are dreamers, people that are visionaries, they say this kind of thing. People that have been depressed and down and beaten down and have struggled financially, they don't say things like this. They want more guarantee. They're far more cautious. But the moment that Nehemiah mentions it, they say, let us rise up and let us build. That's what God does in their heart. Now, with all of this divine action, there is counter-demonic action that takes place in the text beginning in verse 19. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? And thus begin several series of um, stories of opposition to Nehemiah and the people rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. For every action God takes, there is often a demonic counteraction. The whole world did not celebrate the work of God. Not everyone in responsibility was on board, but Nehemiah moved forward anyway because God was with him and had his hand upon him. Now let me summarize this asking and receiving text in this way. Did you notice? Nehemiah made three requests of God in verse 6, 8, and 11. And really verse 6 and 8 are the same request. But at most he made three requests of God. And God answered him with five answers. That's what God did. He came through. In other words, God made his prayer far more effective than he could ever imagine. God gave him so much more. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, used to say, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, for his love and power are such. None could ever ask too much. If God's laid something on your heart, if you see something in his word that needs to be done, bring it to God like Nehemiah did, and God's going to bless you real good. So there's asking and receiving. That's a look at the prayer, but I want us to live in the prayer number two. And here's the point I want to make. Your future does not have to be a total mystery. Your hope does not have to be something undefined. God can make your future and hope look precisely like your prayers. In other words, you can shape tomorrow by praying today. That's what you can do. God is willing to shape a future and hope tomorrow on the basis of what you pray today. So like the old country preacher said one time, let's hold off and pray. 
That's what can happen with your prayers. Not because necessarily you and I are especially good at it, but because God honors it. And he gets the glory. And he answers in a way that when it's all said and done, only people are impressed with him. That's what God is interested in doing. And so your future and your hope can look precisely like your prayers when you pray according to this prayer and other biblical prayers. A future and a hope is right before you. You've got something on your heart for your marriage or your future marriage, for your children or your future children, for your work, for your vocation, for some current sorrows and problems. Take it to God and pray this way, and God can shape your future and hope to look just like those prayers. Well, how can I do that? Well, let me say three things to you real quickly. You need first some confidence in prayer. J. Oswald Sanders said, There is no conceivable situation or circumstance where it is not safe to trust God. Not one. In every circumstance, in every situation that you can conceive or experience, it is right and wise and best to trust Almighty God. No conceivable situation in which you cannot trust God. Now I want to show something to you in chapter 2, verse 6. Nehemiah comes, he makes his petition before the king, and the queen is sitting right next to him. If you know anything about the time of Nehemiah, you're talking about the 5th century. Talking about a king that ruled quite some time. The king here in Ezra, Nehemiah, and in Esther happens to be uh, king Xerxes or Ahasuerus or Artaxerxes. These are not really the names his family would call him. These are titles. Same king much of the way through in these books is what you have here. If you'll turn over to the next book of the Bible, you will find other things that this king happened to do. Now he was somewhat flesh-driven. He was reckless. He was careless in some ways. He got upset with his queen wife because she would not parade her beauty before other state officials and he banished her. And he put in motion a process to find another queen. And do you recall who he found? His next queen was Esther. Esther is the one on the throne in chapter 2 verse 6 when Nehemiah presents his request to the king. She may, this is speculation, but she may have had something to do with Nehemiah getting the job as the cupbearer. And can you imagine what's on her heart about Jerusalem? She's already saved the Jews and the empire. She's already done that. She's an aged queen now. She has done so much for the king and looked out for him. And here Nehemiah appears before the throne. And the queen just happens to be there that day. When the king makes the inquiry. Why are you so sad? What do you think Esther said to the king about Nehemiah's request? It doesn't take much imagination to know the queen was behind it. You say, man, that's a coincidence. Maybe so, but let me tell you something. Coincidences increase when your prayers do. They sure will. Coincidences will increase whenever your prayers do. Listen to me. Listen to me, sweet people. You've got to know God cares deeply about your life and about your future. You are a powerhouse of glory for Jesus is what you are. He shed his blood, the blood of his son, raised him from the dead, and has given you more than 7,000 promises in this word to fuel every bit of your future. Please listen to me. 
If that God has done that for you, does it stretch your imagination too far to believe he is now arranging people, places, and things to make sure your future and hope comes true according to his will? God is now taking care of all the circumstances necessary, all the circumstances necessary to give you a future and a hope. That's why it's so important to sell out to God's will and not your own or someone else's. That's why it's so important to bow everything before him and yield everything before him and to do his will. You don't know the future. Your family doesn't know your future. Whoever you're dating or married to doesn't know the future. No one knows the future. God knows your future. Take your little red wagon and latch it to his rising star and you will find God arranging all sorts of circumstances to make your future in hope real. Have confidence in prayer. Have confidence in prayer. And the way you do that is that you make your prayers look and sound like God. He's awesome, so ask him for the impossible. He's faithful, so plead his promises. He is gracious, so take all your guilt before him. He's trustworthy, so let everything go. He, he's a father, and you may not have had a great father growing up, but he's the father you've always wanted. Trust him and come to him. This is the kind of God who hears you. So have confidence in prayer. But then you need to be ready for conflict in prayer. I remember my first pastorate. We had a powerful revival in our church. Uh, the church was rather stoic and uptight in many ways. It was not emotionally demonstrative, publicly or privately. In fact, I did dozens of funerals there. I only saw one person weep. They got a hold of themselves after three or four seconds and dried it up. That's how tightly controlled everything was. People were very embarrassed about their emotions and about their life, about demonstrating anything publicly. I mean, well, I won't go on and say what I'm thinking, but um, it, it's hard to have life in a place like that. Well, we had Georgia evangelist Glenn Shepard come in, and uh, Glenn preached, and God touched that place, and everything broke loose. We had some wonderful services. People got right with each other. People got right with God. He moved powerfully in that place. And when Glenn left, the seasoned pastor evangelist told me, David, you need to be ready. Either God will break loose more here in this place or all hell will break loose. For every action, there's a counteraction from Satan. Now, I was there another year before I went off to school to do uh, some other work. And uh, the good news is, God continued revival there. I had the best year of my life that last year after that revival. It was marvelous. But you've got to understand, not everyone is going to celebrate the movement of God in your life. There will possibly be some conflict that arises. And that's what takes place in the life of Nehemiah. And you've got to be ready for it. You see, not only does God have a plan for your future, but so does Satan. Both have a plan. And it's manifested here in this text through Tobiah. It's manifested through Sanballat and some others in the book of Nehemiah. And it begins a, a almost endless series of conflicts that take place. And so don't be a bit surprised if before, during, or after your prayers, the enemy seeks to interrupt you or discourage you. Uh, Dick Eastman said this. Look with me. He said, Satan knows well the power of prayer. He's been wounded by many prayers, many of yours. 
No doubt he assigns a massive regiment of demons to thwart Christians in prayer. Oh no, there he goes talking about the devil again. Look, Jesus believed in this, I do too, okay? Take it up with him. But this is an excellent, excellent statement. You've got to understand, before, during, or after your prayers, do not be surprised at an attempt by the enemy to thwart your prayers. During your prayer, you may think the ugliest thoughts you've ever thought. During your prayers, you may think of a list of things to do. Can I suggest something? Keep a index card or a notepad next to you or some kind of um, uh, some ability to write these things down and write these things down and when you're done praying, go back and pray about those. And then tell the enemy, try messing with me again in prayer. I'll pray about it. See? Ron Dunn said this, Satan trembles at the sight of a praying church. Hey, by the way, it's time for God's people to quit trembling. It's time for us to pray in such a way that the enemy trembles. That's what I believe. So he trembles at the sight of a praying church and will do everything he can to destroy your ministry of intercession. People's indifference, neglect, and discouragement are his most effective weapons. So if you pray and it seems like things break loose and come against you, don't you dare get discouraged and retreat. Reload. Call a number of people to join with you in prayer. Ask about seven people to pray for you every day for several weeks and to fast and to pray. If you don't know any, ask us. We'll tell you some. Send us an email. We'll communicate. we got 150 prayer warriors in our church, many of them who will fast and pray for you if you've got great need. But do not be surprised if a counteraction from the enemy comes your way whenever you pray. There's no time to retreat. It's time to reload in prayer. So there's confidence in prayer and conflict in prayer, but then there's completion in prayer. What you'll find with Nehemiah is that he not only prayed, but Nehemiah also planned. He marshaled resources from the king. He got his passports in order. He uh, did all he could to get the resources necessary to build Jerusalem. He rallied the people. He cast a vision. They caught it, and they carried it out together is what they did. So Nehemiah just didn't leave things in prayer. Nehemiah got up out of his prayer life and began to act like God was going to answer it. And that is the key to getting your prayers answered. In other words, the way to complete your prayers and to complete the process of prayer is to rise up out of your prayer time and go act like God is going to answer your prayer. Manly Beasley used to say, faith is acting as if it's so, when it isn't so, so God will make it so. You see, if you don't believe God's not going to answer, you've got to trust Him. And one way you can demonstrate that you trust Him is to pray, get up out of that prayer time, and go act like God is going to answer your prayer. Hey, I'm not making this up. Mark chapter 11, verse 24. Here's what Jesus said. He said this, Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. The Greek tense here in the text is very, very important. Believe that you receive them. That is present active. Believe as you're praying that you are currently receiving the answer. Now, if it matches the character of God, you can have that confidence. If it's within the character of God, you can have that confidence. You believe that at that moment, God is acting on your behalf to get it done. And then you get up and go act like God's going to answer it. 
If you've got a check in your spirit, you might want to wait. But if there's no check in your spirit, if there's no counsel against it, you go act as if God is going to answer your prayer. Let, let me ask you this. You pray and you say, oh God, would you please, oh God, make my friends receptive to the good news and to an invitation to Friend Day September 22nd. Well, listen, if you trust God and you're going to complete your prayers, what will you do with, uh, out of that prayer time? Well, you get up and you go act like God's going to answer it by making your friends receptive. And so you go invite them, okay? What if you pray, God, would you please heal this relationship? Well, then what do you do? If you trust God, there's no check in your spirit, there's no counsel against it, you, you get up out of that prayer time and you go approach the person with whom you have a broken relationship and you try to mend it. By the way, I would start with confessing your own part in it, okay? It's the best way to begin. Um, what, what if you believe, what if you believe um, that uh, God is going to bless a gift and an offering? You give it and you act as if God is going to bless it. In other words, faith is acting as if it's so when it isn't so, so God will make it so. God blesses believing prayer is what God does. Complete your prayers. And that's how we connect faith with prayer. Well, Nehemiah has prayed a marvelous exemplary prayer, and it's been an enormous help to us. What do we do with this? Edwin Landseer was a marvelous British uh, painter. He was honored in the royal court for it. And one time he was traveling in Scotland. He was at an inn. He was eating. And there was a man telling a fish story, and he was gesturing uh, wildly. And a young lady walked past him with a tray of tea, and he just, uh, without paying attention, knocked the tea off into the wall. It splashed against the whitewashed wall and made a stain there. And the inn owner was a bit upset, but Edwin Lancier looked back at it, and as only some of these artists can do, began to imagine something neat coming out of it. So he gathered his palette and his brushes and his paints, and he began to paint. And when he was done, there was a meadow, there were some trees, there was a forest, and there was a stag, a, a buck, there in the painting. Do you know something? Someone carelessly has come across your life, maybe you, and has just knocked your future in hope. And it looks like it's destroyed. But the God who loves you, the God who slaughtered his son for you, to give you a future and a hope, is able to take the stain of your life and turn it into something that will glorify Jesus and give you a future and a hope. The moment you trust him. You do that by giving your heart and life to Christ. That means you stop believing that you can't be loved. You stop believing that you cannot be redeemed. You stop believing, you stop believing that God couldn't possibly do anything with you. The Bible calls that repentance and it says repent and return that you may have times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord is what the scripture teaches. So you stop believing that and then you trust God enough to return to him and to come to him and trust what he's done in the Lord Jesus to cleanse you. May, may I ask you, is there anything a God who would be crucified and raised in your place, is there anything he wouldn't do to give you a future and a hope? Let's pray about it. Father, thank you for the good news of the word. Oh, how we bless you. You've been so kind and good to instruct us today. And Holy God.